welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. Once again, I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and this week I am thrilled to be talking to Shauna Germain, who has quite the resume and background, which I'm going to go through here. So she has been a writer and editor for the past 20 years, is also a game designer, uh, has been a teacher at various places in the past, also currently co-owner of Monty Cook Games, has been involved in Numenera, uh, designing that. And her latest novel, The Poison Eater, is, is now, is that out already or is it soon to be released? Uh, that just came out from Angry Robot Books, yes. Wonderful. Last but certainly not least, a very strong advocate and activist for human rights, and that's something that I'd be interested in touching on as well. So welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. There's almost so much stuff that you're involved in that I want to dive into. It's hard to know <laughs> where to start. Um, but one thing that I thought might be a, an interesting place to start and maybe provide you as a little bit of an introduction to folks who might not know about you, you recently wrote a article for the Knife's Edge site about kind of the difference between being a fiction writer and being a game designer. And I really enjoyed how you kind of structured that and explained it and wondered if you could use some of that language to just maybe introduce yourself to folks who don't know who you are. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, my, I guess you could, you could sort of follow a lot of my life in terms of how I've moved as a writer. Um, I started as a poet. My goal was to tell a story that could break your heart in five words or less. Nice. Um, I didn't nice. always succeed, but <laughs> that's kind of where I began. Um, and then I moved into short fiction, which has uh, a very specific uh, way of looking at very small stories, uh, stories that, that sort of shatter things apart on a very sort of micro level almost, uh, and then moved into mellows and then into novels and then moved into game design, which, uh, as I talk about in the articles, I've, I sort of walked in thinking, I've got this, and then realized that game design is a very different beast than writing stories. Um, it's com It's different on so many levels. And now I do a little bit of all of those things, which I feel very lucky to be able to say. That's great. And one of the first things that you talk about in that article is you describe that fiction is about the unknown and game design is about the known, which I thought was really interesting. And you dive into how as a as an author writing a book, you want to leave some mystery, you want to keep the keep the reader turning pages, and game design is completely different. <laughs> so how how did that how did you first discover that when you, you when you started creating games? Well, you know, I started, Numenera was the first game that I worked on kind of in that scale. And so I had a, a really great mentor in Monty Cook who's been designing games for 25 plus years. Uh, you know, I've known him for like four, year, four or five years now. And every time he says, I've been designing it for 25 years. And so now I think he's got to be getting uh, closer <laughs> to 30. I don't know. Um, and so, you know, it was a great opportunity because he also writes fiction. And so ha he had a lot of experience in both of those. And I, I got really lucky to have him as a mentor right out of the gate. But for me, it was, you know, I would start writing these games and, and, you know, I would be working on them and there would be information that was really pertinent. And in fiction, that's like the last page or the, the big reveal of two thirds of the way through the book. And so there would be, all, <laughs> I'd have all this lead up in my game and then, and then the big reveal. And it, it was just so late that it, a player or a GM would just be like, what is she talking about? There was just, there was no way to design a game that works on that way. I mean, adventures, but even then the GM needs to know ahead of time what the giant beast is that's going to spring on the players two thirds of the way through the adventure. And so 
a lot of it was undoing what I had learned as a, as a fiction writer, which was to create suspense and, and know exactly when to reveal what bit of information. And actually I used to be a journalist. I worked for a lot of newspapers. And so it was kind of going almost back to that journalism thing where you, you do the, here's what I'm going to, here's what this whole thing is about. And you encapsulate it really early in the beginning. And then you go and you retell the story in a slowed down kind of way for the adventure. And so, um, so I was able to draw on that experience and, and on Monty's experience as well. Yeah. That's, that's interesting kind of setting up the, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it and then I'm going to summarize it. (laughs) And I was like, no, no, you don't do that in storytelling and, and in game design, you kind of have to, you really have to be able to ground uh, your GM and your players in the information that they need to know right out of the gate. And so from a, from a creative standpoint and like what's fulfilling for you coming from a background of poetry as well does the game design feel too constrictive at times for you that's an interesting question no i don't think so they feel very different um and in some ways um one of the reasons that i started as a and i was actually a narrative poet um is because plot is is sort of not my strength plot is very very hard for me and it's one of the things that I still feel like, ah, oh, this plot thing, someday I'm going to grow up and be an adult and understand how it works. <laughs> and, and the great thing about game design is I don't have to do any plot. The characters at the, t- the players at the table do it all for me. And so in some ways it's actually very freeing because I can let go. It's like, you know, you go to the gym and if your arms are really strong, you're like, oh, I want to work my arms, but I don't want to work my legs because my legs are really tired. And so, you know, game design is kind of like that. I get to work my strengths in a way that, it's just a sort of freeing and fun. And then I go back to fiction, which is something that I also love, but is, is hard in a different way for me trying to figure out plots. And, um, you know, I'm very character driven and I think, I hope that that shows in my game design that my games have really deep, intense characters, um, in addition to, you know, the world building, that kind of stuff. And in a, I thought there's probably a typical day for you, but I wonder in a, in a typical day or typical week, how often do you have to set shift between those mentalities of, you know, for this three hour block, I'm a writer. And for this two hour block, I'm a game designer. How, how often do you have to jump back and forth? It really depends on the kind of the projects I'm working on. I would say that when I was working as the managing editor for Magic Games, which um, we just brought in someone, Dennis, um, to do last year, which is great. Uh, so that's freed me up to do a lot more writing. So I actually sh- switch gears a lot less right now. Um, so And so now that I mostly write, my schedule is a lot less sort of of that back and forth juggle than it used to be. But I actually like that I like being able to work different parts of my brain. And so for a great day for me is, you know, I get up and I work on 2000 words of the novel that I'm working on. And then I work on maybe a blog post or something short. That's kind of almost like a palate cleanser. And then I do another, you know, some revision on the game design that I'm working on. And I really like actually being able to switch gears. I find that my brain gets really tired of working in the same groove after a couple of hours. And so being able to switch allows me to be really productive. That's great. And it seems like just, you know, from looking at the synopsis of The Poison Eater and then just like reading some of your other blog articles that you just mentioned, it it seems like you infuse all your work with this very um, kind of personal style of, I can't find a better like kind of word to explain that, but it just seems like it, at least me as a reader gets, I get pulled in a little bit. (laughs) Uh, like there's real emotion that seems like it's coming from you, but it's channeled in this way that's meant to be evocative to the person reading it. And I'm wondering, I imagine that's very intentional on your part. How did that develop over time? 
You know, I had a, uh, I went a long time ago. I was lucky enough to have a very fantastic writers group that was led by the writer Tom Spanbauer. And one of the things that he said in that that group that I will never ever forget was, "Tell your story like you're talking to a friend after three martinis." And it was so smart because at the time I was, you know, I sort of had come from a literary background. I was reading a lot of literary fiction, which can sort of have this really beautiful language, but this kind of highbrow feel. And I think at that point in, in my creative career, I was trying to figure out what my voice was. Um, and so I was emulating these because I loved those books. And, and what I was not understanding was that um, that wasn't my voice. My voice, I have a lot of different voices, but my voices are all, I think, very much like, hey, I've had a couple of drinks. Come sit by me. Let's have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so for him to say that to me was actually kind of life changing in terms of being able to just dig down into the me that that is in there. And finding out, you know, because because I've done so much of my life, I've been really lucky. You know, I grew up on kind of a hippie farm in upstate New York, and I was able to pay my way through school, and I bartended, and I, you know, I, I was a volunteer firefighter, and so I've had all these fantastic experiences, and they all come with this voice or or voices that I try to utilize, but they're all very much, um, I hope, full of sort of compassion and empathy and a desire to connect with other human beings. Yeah, I definitely think that comes through, and, and one of I think you, it just was posted recently, was a blog post about grief in writing. And yeah, yeah so what what were your thoughts going into that? You know, I think that um, grief is something that's so hard to write about because it's so unique to each person. And there are the, there are the, there's so many different levels of grief, right? There's grief when someone dies. There's grief when you give up on a dream. There's grief when you get divorced. There's grief when your country is, is going through wild changes like we are right now. I mean, there's so many different kinds of grief that really we need a different word for each one, I think. And, and we only have this one. And it's just kind of this word that doesn't encompass all of the things that it should. And so I was just thinking about how the things that happen in my life, you know, I talk about in that essay, like I lost my, both of my grandfathers within a week of each other last fall, my uncle passed away, you know, there were some other tragedies in my life. And I just sort of was thinking, and in, in, in the midst of it, I was finishing this novel that was in many ways, a, really a novel of hope and recovery. And going through those grieving processes while sort of doing the revision of it made me realize that I hadn't gone deep enough into her grief that she needed to recover from. And so the the novel in many ways was deepened by my personal experiences. And I think that for me, we, as a culture, we try to ignore grief, right? We don't talk about funerals. We don't talk about death. It's sort of, it, it, it's sort of similar in some ways to how we deal with sex. I think we just sort of ignore it until it, it becomes an issue and then we kind of skirt around it. And, and I think grieving is so important to us as human beings, to our empathy, to our storytelling, uh, to helping each other ma- mend and, and move forward. And so I was just thinking about all of those things and trying to put them into a couple of words, which is sometimes very hard when it's such a big topic. Yeah, and I've really you know enjoyed enjoyed reading that. And one of the things you talk about is how I think you describe grief. It's it's not a straight line. It's not linear. It's more like a children's scribble all over the page, <laughs> where it, it kind of circles and it loops back onto itself. And my day job, I'm a psychologist, so I work with um, patients who are dealing with various kinds of grief and, and adjustment. And like you said, there's there's really not a nuanced word for all the different things that that can be lost that you can grieve over certainly the death of a loved one but the loss of identity like retirement can be a grieving process there's 
so many ways that it comes up. And, you know, there's that model of the five stages of grief that people probably know about. And I always tell the people I work with, this is a good theory to have in mind, but there's not, it's not like you step up them and you never revisit those stages ever again. Like you just, you kind of loop around. And so coming to that idea of acceptance, like maybe you're in acceptance for a few days, but you know, you could be back in anger pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I think that expectation that we're supposed to fit into those five is tricky too, because, you know, that, like you said, that's a great start, but you know, grieving is such an interesting and complex process and so unique. And I actually just was watching, I just went and watched um, Manchester by the Sea. And, you know, Monty and I actually afterward had this really interesting discussion about the difference between grief and sadness mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, grief carries this weight in our culture, this expectation that it is ending, that it has an end point, that at some point you will be over grief, which of course we know is not true. But then there's this a sadness that can be, you know, that is, that is deeper and, and more complex. And, and then of course, you, you know, you walk the, into those lines of things like depression and, and other elements that are kind of all in that same grayscale, but that are very different for each person and each experience. And you can have all three of those at the same time and not know how to untangle them or, or, or deal with them. And, and how does writing for you is how much of that is a way to, to process grief, to move from one stage or one part of that squiggly line to another? How, how does that interplay with your emotions and the, the work you do? I think that for me, writing is actually the way that I process almost every emotion, positive, negative, tough, hard, easy. Um, I find that I don't, you know, you, you, as humans, we like to think we're super self-aware and I'm like, I know who I am and I know how I feel, but then that suddenly, and this is true for not just the writing of things, but the reading or the watching or the even playing games. And suddenly you're hit with this emotion where you're like, wait, I didn't know that that was part of this experience for me. And that's, I didn't know that's how I felt. And so I think all creative things, art and movies and, and just sort of everything that you touch that is, that is designed by someone else's hands can really help you sink into those emotions and those feelings and, and ask yourself, is this really how I feel? Do I feel differently? Does that matter? And so for me, all of those become part of growing as a human being. How do I, how do I handle the things that I'm going through and turn them into something that I can live with, turn them into something positive, turn them into something that potentially has a a good impact on the world in some way. Um, which of course is funny circling back around to, I want to break your heart in five words or less, because I think that is part of the, the, that is part of the way that creativity makes us better people. It breaks our hearts so that we can put them back together and see what that looks like and become stronger. And it seems to involve quite a bit of willingness to be vulnerable on the, the reader's point of view or the writer's point of view to, to have that vulnerability, to have your heart broken in five words or less, or. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, uh, I, I feel like, like reading and writing and, and viewing and it, it's all vulnerability and, and not everyone has that experience, right? People walk into those kinds of things with, with different goals. Um, so, you know, some people read to have their personal views validated and, you know, and so they have a really different purpose for why they experience those things. But for me, it's all about, what can I learn? What did I learn? What, how does this push me? How, where do I feel uncomfortable is a question I ask myself all the time. And particularly if I'm writing and I don't feel uncomfortable, I stop and say, why? Like, what am I doing? And it often turns out that I'm doing something by rote, that I'm not paying attention. I'm not 
pushing the edges. Uh, you know, there there is something happening that is causing me to to sort of put up walls, and so I make that uncomfortable check a lot. A lot. Am I feeling uncomfortable? Yes. Okay. Then then something that I'm doing is working. But it is. It's a dark woods. You have to really be willing to enter it and love it. I think in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it really sounds like you do enjoy and thrive in that those dark woods in that environment. <laughs> I don't know if you catch me in the middle of a novel, you would not say that was right. true. <laughs> but um, but I I I think I I feel worse not writing than I do writing, no matter how bad the writing experience is. Um, and and I've also learned that that sort of hating the process at points, or being unsure about the process, or or all of those bad, hard, uncomfortable emotions that come from writing, they're all part of the experience. They aren't they aren't an indication that what I'm doing is a bad idea or that the novel is bad or anything. They are, for me, part of the process, which makes it sound like writing is awful. But there's lots and lots and lots of good stuff, too. Like, there's moments when I'm like, this is working, and look, I just, you know, I did this thing. And then, you know, I think for me, with The Poison Eater, which is the book that just came out, like, one of the early readers you know, it was like, you made me cry by page, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yes, <laughs> my work here is done. <laughs> Fantastic. That makes me sound so sadistic, but <laughs> so do you have a favorite, um, you know, breaking someone's heart in five words or less poem or from the past that, that uh, oh my God, no, no. Um, but I mean, I, there's just, there's lots of great stuff out there that I read again and again. Um, other people who've, who've done it and, you know, just do it so much better than I ever will. And, and they're amazing. And, you know, um, wild geese by Mary Oliver, not five words or less, but just mm-hmm. breaks my heart every time I read it. And I just think it's, I don't know, it's just so beautiful and wonderful. And probably anything by Amy Bloom, also her early fiction, her short story is just, I don't know, just, they just kind of blow the world up for you. And it's interesting, as we're talking, one of the things that came to my mind is, you know, some of, in the past on my side, I've kind of written about grief, both from a personal perspective, but also as it relates to, to gaming. And a lot of times I think grief um, gets equated to, like, well, my player died in the game, and, like, what do I do now? But I wonder, as a game designer or just someone who, like, plays games, or where does grief fit in? to that process, either creating games or sitting at a table and playing games? I think that grief fits in in so many ways because it's, it's a great opportunity for your characters to grow. Um, and you know, one of the things that I often try to put into games that I don't think that I would love to see more of are, are sort of grief ceremonies. What do you do when a character dies? How, how do the players, I mean, do they, you know, does they, do they just re-roll and they're like, yeah, so someone's dad, we left his body in the dungeon. Or do you have a burial? Do you distribute their belongings? Do you, do you go to the person's family and tell them that they're dead? Because these are all hard moments. These are all really character developing moments. And so I think that, that they have a place in games, but we don't see them that often. Um, it's sort of death is like death is the the final for the group and not just the character. And I think that there's there's potential to break that open. What happens after one character dies and how does the rest of the group handle that? And what does that mean? Do they not care? That seems unrealistic. Um, do they does, does this culture, this setting have ways in which they handle the dead? I, I think those are beautiful moments that. Um, can be really hard, right? You have to talk to your players and make sure they're okay with mm-hmm. having those kinds of emotional stuff. But, but I still have oh, such such a great opportunity there to learn and grow. Yeah, that that type of activity I, I think takes a lot of trust among the players, the person like running the game to 
kind of steer the ship in that direction, but also to have the players jump on board and be like, okay, I guess we're going to spend the next half hour at a ceremony or talking to the player who died, their family. Like, let's just get back on the horse and go go fight something. I think right, that and there's a lot. Characters. Yeah, there's some characters for whom that's the right answer. I mean, we see in real life, right, that some people, they lose a loved one and their reaction is to return to work wholeheartedly and not, you know, and that's their way of dealing and functioning. And and so, sure, there are absolutely some characters whose reaction might be that. But to have everyone's character react like that seems like a missed opportunity for heartbreak, of course. (laughs) And and so this idea of grief also ties into another thing I wanted to, to chat with you about, and that is your identity as someone who's an act- activist and, you know, the statement that Monte Cook Games put out um, about our values fairly recently where, you know, if people haven't seen it. It's, it's a couple of paragraphs that are on the website. And, you know, the first paragraph ends where it says, we support the civil liberties of all people and manifest that support in our own small way through the fun and imagination of games. But we... But now we find that we must add to these core values, we must add truth. And then there's another paragraph that goes on. And, you know, from just kind of researching your background, I just kind of felt like a lot of your hand was involved in writing that. And I could be wrong there. But why was it important for for you and Monty and uh, the rest of the people involved in Monty Cook Games to put that out? Well, you know, that is a – we're a team who really – sort of believes in humanity, I would say. And, you know, the games, you know, we work really hard to create games and game spaces and art and language that depicts a a place where people can see themselves mirrored, right? Where they feel like they belong, where they feel welcomed. Um, and, And that's just sort of, you know, it's one of our core values at MCG. We've had it since we began. Um, It's really important to Monty and I to, to give gaming to everyone who wants it um, sort of, and to make a space for that. And I think that, you know, we, we, we tend to be very quiet about it. We don't, you know, we create art with a lot of diversity, but we don't sort of crow about those kinds of things. We'd rather just do it and have the people for whom it matters see that and know that they are welcome, that they are included, uh, that they are mirrored. Um, and so, for the most part, we're, we're, we stay sort of quiet about it. We do it behind the scenes and hope that the people to whom it matters see it. Um, but in in light of of things that are happening in our culture right now, um, you know, there's just so so many places where people feel unsafe, unwelcome, you know, worried about families and friends and loved ones. And we we just felt that it was really important to come out and and put it on the page a little bit. Um, the things that most people who know us and know our games already know. Um, and you know, we, we've had some, some lashback against that. There are people for whom, uh, our values don't matter. They just want to buy our games and not think about politics. And that's totally fine. Um, for me as a creative individual, sort of stepping aside from MCG for a second, like I do feel that you can't, take politics and creativity apart. That isn't to say that every creative person has to be political, right? That that's not, um, it's not a requirement, but I do think that like people who are aware and artists and writers and game designers are aware, right? We're paying attention to people. We're empathizing. We understand what's happening in our culture. It's part of our job to pay attention. We are, we are the ones who, 
um, you know, it, it becomes part of our art. It, it just does because we live in this world, we interact with people. And so it's a tricky space, right? You don't, one of the risks of being political is that you can ostracize people accidentally. And so that's very, very tricky. And so our goal is just sort of openness and inclusion and invitation and representation. And, you know, we, uh, I think it's a hard thing to do perfectly, but it's, it's where we come from in our hearts. And that really matters to me. Yeah. And I imagine there's even people who maybe even turned off this episode already because they're like, oh, God, let's get into politics. So they're trying to fast forward <laughs> to like, when are they going to talk about game design stuff? And, <laughs> and, uh, and I've been, you know, if, if that happened, then I, you know, hopefully those people stay tuned uh, for, for when we do get into those topics. But I, I think it's really important. And it's something I just struggle with on a, on a personal level of where, not even where do you draw the line, but how much of your time do you devote to everything that's happening um, in the country right now politically where there's just a lot of, a lot of turmoil for, for some people, like how much do you empathize with that? How much do you stay informed? How much do you try to persuade other people? How much do you advocate? And it's been interesting just, you know, following different creative types on, on Twitter, whether it be comedians or game designers or sports journalists or regular journalists, uh, <laughs> just the pushback from people of saying, just stay in this lane. That's why I'm following you. Do this thing and don't do anything else. That's been really interesting. You kind of were talking about like the topics of grief and sex. Like we don't really talk about those things. And it seems like politics is becoming like another thing where we're just in our silos and like you don't want to hear it from other people, um, which I don't think is good. <laughs> I don't think that's a good thing. I don't know. what What's the feedback been overall uh, for you folks? Well, you know, it's interesting to to sort of step back, like, through my personal history, sort of on that topic for a second. I think it's yeah. really interesting because when I came out and started writing about sex, I got that same reaction. Don't write about sex, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly not in the literary world. Don't write, You're not supposed to write about sex. And so then when I came out and started writing about kinky sex, it was don't, you know, you're not supposed to write about that stuff. Stick to the other things that I like about your writing. Um, and so it's interesting that like that as a writer, for me, that has been a response to my writing for a really long time, that idea of staying in your own lane. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's not something that I, you know, sort of do not go lightly <laughs> into that good night mm -hmm. because I sort of feel like, no, that's my job. And not, like I said, not every writer is political. Not every writer wants to push those boundaries, but I do. Um, I'm very much of the Anais Nin. Um, my job as a writer is to say the things that, that can't be said. Um, and so, so this is not new to me. It's just that the lane has changed. The parameters of the lane have, have altered and, and the people who are pushing back are in some cases the same and in some cases not. They're just talking about a different topic. Um, for us as a company, I think that we mostly have gotten great support and great responses. Our fans are fantastic. I just adore them so much. Um, they really want to learn. They want to be open. They, they believe in humanity. They believe in creativity. Um, they're just, if, I, I just feel so lucky all the time to have them. Um, and so it's only been here and there. And it's often people who aren't buying our games anyway, who, you know, who sort of are, are responding negatively. And, I kind of feel like that's it's, it's totally okay for them to respond like that. They can say whatever they want, of course. Um, but it makes me a little bit sad that they aren't willing to to listen to other viewpoints. I mean, I feel like 
one of my goals is to listen to other viewpoints. And sometimes that's so hard to sit there and, and have someone talk to you about things where you feel like you could be like, okay, well, the facts are this, this, and this, and this. But I learned something about humanity from listening to that experience. And, and you know, so I feel... I don't know. I feel, I feel bad that we can't reach everyone to at least say, Hey, listen, let's have a conversation about this. Let's see if there is a place we can come to a middle ground. Um, but like you said, I also have to know that my main goal is to write things. And so having conversations is cool and awesome. But if I spend my whole life having conversations and trying to talk to people and meet the middle grounds, I wouldn't get the writing done. Mm -hmm. And the writing is really where I believe my activism lies. You know, one of the things I think, you know, you were talking about the word, you know, empathy before and, you know, that comes through in writing and also in trying to have conversations, being able to like take the perspective of somebody else mm. is such an important skill. And it seems like the Rubik's Cube that hasn't quite been figured out these days is there's this kind of free speech debate of, I, well, I want you to, I want you to hear and acknowledge and recognize my opinion or my point of view. But that point of view is, I don't think like you have these rights to do X, Y, and Z. And that to me is where it gets difficult, where there's, I don't even know if it's a false equivalency, but it's like, you know, people are standing up for, you know, gender rights or sexual orientation rights. And other people are saying like, no, you shouldn't get them. And it's, I, I, it's like, you just want to kind of wring your hair out. Um, like, how do you cope with, with that sort of stuff? Um, well, on one hand, I'm super grateful for my life experiences, um, you know, probably 20 years ago now, I worked for this fantastic magazine called Nervy Girl, where uh, we were trying really hard to talk about topics like this. And people, uh, you know, we the, the magazine did really well, it had a great following, but, but people were not ready to hear it. People were very angry that we were sort of writing about things like women choosing to wear headdresses and why, because at the time that was considered to be sort of this anti-feminist thing. And so when we came out with this thing of like, women are choosing to wear this. Here's why. Here are their voices. People were super, super angry at us. Um, when I came out as bisexual, people were really angry at me that I couldn't choose a side, <laughs> which is kind of the story of my life. I feel like I'm often sort of in the moderate in the middle of things and people either want me to shut up or choose a side. And, and that's just putting that's just putting other people in such a small box. Um, and we're so much more complex than that. We're not black and white. And I think it's a real loss that we're not willing and able to see the gray in each other anymore um, or the gray in a topic or the gray in, in kind of anything. It, it has to be yes or no, black or white, um, on or off. And and we know that the world doesn't work like that. Humans don't work like that. Nothing. Not I mean, science doesn't even work like that. Um, and so I think it's I think it's an interesting time in our culture, but I don't think it's new. I think it's just growing and changing um, in ways that the world, the, the larger world and the larger culture are seeing it where it used to be more pockets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've read an interesting article that was, you know, everything with the election in the States that it's kind of, it's kind of thrown everyone into that. Like you need to pay attention to these things now. Like it's hard to escape where I think most people would escape from it for a day, a week, a month or two years until the next election. Like they would just sort of bury their head in the sand, go about their life and, it wouldn't matter. Whereas now it's, it's kind of hard to get away from. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I think people, people should be more engaged, but it's whether it's at work or a family gathering or just hanging out with friends or, you know, any, any channel on television these days, it's like, you can't really escape it. And I don't know if it was like that even like two, three years ago. 
Right. I think it was absolutely that the people who were in the smaller groups, like, you know, the advocates who were working, who were faced with it every day, you know, people of color who were struggling against things, GLBT people who are struggling. We've seen so many of those issues in the trans community who are sort of struggling to say, listen, you have to listen. And, and people, you're right, they don't, right? They didn't, they didn't choose to listen. They could just block it out. And I think that that's changing on a large scale uh, outside of those communities. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because we are, we're in a country that is is changing drastically. We're in a country that's in many ways grieving. Um, we're a country that is sort of in tune in a way that we haven't been in a long time. And you know, it's you know the studies that are coming out about how the psychological effects, which I'm, I'm sure that you have looked at, the fact that people are less productive right now because we're so sort of drawn into the things that are happening. And so, in in many ways, I feel like this is an opportunity for people to discover some self care. You know, how do I you know, if grief is going to be my, my process every day right now, how do I take care of myself? Right. Right. Does, does, is social media actually good for me? How much news do I need to have to be informed and still be a functional human being? I mean, these are all questions that lots and lots of people are going to have to ask themselves, I think, this year. And, um, you know, some people will find great answers and some won't. And I, I don't know, it's going to be a really interesting look at how we, how self-aware we are, how willing to change and grow we are, how willing to help each other we are. I think those are all going to be big, big concerns. And, and from a self-care point of view, I, I think one of the, maybe not the best, but certainly a, a good piece of advice to start with is just, you know, the hurricane of, of news that's 24-7. There's any number of causes you might be personally worried about or concerned about. And I would just say pick one and and do something productive for that thing. Like not, not one person is going to be able to solve all the different issues that are coming up. Um, but if that means donating 10 bucks a month or volunteering a couple hours a week or, you know, writing, calling a congressperson, like whatever it is, just pick one thing and do it. And then maybe get back to other aspects of your life that are enjoyable. But that's easier said than done. <laughs> Right. And that touches on something that we haven't even talked about in addition to grief, which is guilt. I mean, I think so many people right now feel so much guilt for not knowing what to do or how to do it or where to start or how to finish or not doing enough. Um, and that's that's a tricky place too. you know, trying to figure out guilt and grief and, and, you know, where where are your own edges? How much can you possibly take off of your own skin before you are no longer a human being? And that's hard. It's a hard it's a hard place to find answers to. And and to bring it back a little bit to the to gaming world, and believe me, I could go in that direction for a long, long time. So I appreciate your willingness to go there as well. And much like grief, maybe we'll loop back and get back into that. But I wonder what can people involved in games do, you know, maybe from a diversity or an inclusion standpoint. You know, I've talked about this with some some prior guests here on the show because you know it's a topic I, I really care about. You know, you talked about something almost, I wanted to say as simple, but it's not that simple of just like the art depiction, the art direction of a book and how that can kind of be a welcome mat to new types of players to a game. But, um, you know, as a designer, as a writer, like what do you think are, or even as a player, what do you think are ways to kind of make the gaming environment more inclusive? Uh, there's, there are so many ways, like you said, that are actually seem simple but aren't like getting art to be inclusive is actually sometimes really tricky because 
our tradition with art in RPGs is white men swinging swords. And so if you ask for a character, that's often what you get. And so you have to start actually really saying, no, this is, this is what I want. I want a woman who breaks the sort of stereotypical, this is what a woman looks like thing. And she needs to be a mixed race and she needs to be, right. And so you start pushing your artist and, and it's not that they don't want to do it. It's that they don't know that that's an option because they've been trained for so long to, to pick white men. And so having really clear communications with artists and writers um, and even and even, you know, people who do layout, what's who's on your cover? It's great if your book is full of people who aren't white. But if your covers are all full of white men, you're saying something in that and that, you know, do you, is that really what you want to say? Is it, you know, having someone on the cover who's not a white male is so big. It's so it's just saying so much. It's giving so much opportunity for people to see themselves in the games and so I think that those kinds of elements are very, very important. I think that for me, too, that, you know, I'd like to, what I'd really like to see is many more voices on things like panels and mm. leading classes. And we're still having those experiences where it's a panel full of white people talking about diversity. And that's really tricky and, and not right and complicated. And I think it takes a little bit of effort to sort of move through the the sort of, I don't know, the, the people that are in your face, I guess, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but the people that you see every day and say, no, you know what, we actually are going to dig a little bit deeper and find all these great artists and writers and designers out there who have a different experience than these people who are new, who are younger, who are, you know, not white, who are not male, who are not all these things, who are not straight, um, because I think those voices matter. And so I can talk about being bisexual and I can talk about being a woman, but I can't talk about not being white because I've been white my whole life. And so there are, there are places where I, the, I, my voice doesn't matter in those kinds of questions because I don't have the experience and the knowledge. And so we need to be asking the people who do who have the experience and the knowledge. And I think that that, you know, op helping, helping open those doors, doing internships, um, you know, finding those people who are doing really cool things and supporting them. I think all of those things matter. I think at the table, having, um, you know, gender identification notes if people want that so that they, you know, people know what pronouns to use, um, having, uh, making sure that as a GM and as a player, I think it's your responsibility as a player too, to make sure that the table feels, feels safe, um, that it feels open and inclusive. And those are all, you know, I mean, you could, you could do a whole thing about each one of those topics all by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just so many little ways. And when you think about the people who've made a difference in your life, and made you feel welcome and accepted, though, you know, they gave you a safe space. Think about those people and then emulate that. I try to do that all the time because so many people have done that for me. And I think, okay, well, this is the thing that made me feel safe. This is the thing that made me feel welcome. I'm going to try to give that back when I have the opportunity to do so. It's so, it feels so small. It's just one person that you're connecting to, but you know, those people have changed my life and that's huge. That's great. And even just by kind of leading by example. So like your next novel, the, the poison eater, I'm just looking at the cover and it's um, like a mixed race person, a woman, uh, also an amputee, which I, th I think is yes. from a, like a, a disability standpoint. I was talking with some prior guests about that, about making gaming more accessible. Like maybe you would gloss over that, but to me it sort of stands out. It's like, Oh, this, this might be something different. This isn't the normal like fantasy tropes and, this might have something a little, it might appeal to certainly a bigger, not a, a different audience, people who might not otherwise pick up a, a book called The Poison Eater. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's um, and that's one of the things that I love is like none of the reviews, none of the people who've read it, nobody has has pulled that out as the reason that they liked it. And so to me, that means like, okay, so they are they are just they're accepting this woman with all of her flaws and all of her interesting traits and all of her like all of her personality as for who she is. And they're not focusing on all of the other things. And I love that. Right. That's that to me is like looking at each person or each character as their own individual, their own unique self seems so important. And I think that, you know, things like the internet make it really easy to put people in those boxes and be like, okay, well you are in this box and you are in this box and you are in this box rather than saying you are this really complex, unique individual with all of these cool traits. And I'm going to get to know you on that level. From like a game design perspective, how, how, how do you mesh that in with either settings or, or rules or just in the way, like you said, layout, like what have been some of the strategies you've, you've had with MCG to, to make that happen? You know, I think it's, um, well, so the one that we just came out with was our expansion to no thank you evil, which is one of the places that's just so such a wonderful opportunity to just use the art to showcase diversity. So the majority of the art is, is, uh, there's all genders. Um, we have we have characters who are not clearly one gender or the other. Um, we have a, we try to have a spectrum of genders. We don't go into sexuality because it's for younger kids. Um, but there are there are ra- all different races or all different religions depicted. Um, the piece that we're coming out, the expansion that we're coming out with, has a fighter in a in a really cool like eagle wheelchair, <laughs> and he's on the cover of the box, and that just makes me so happy. And so, I think that you know, just creating people, the people that you know, the people that you love, real life human people, and then it's like it's like it's interesting to me because right, we we all live in this world where all these people are so diverse and they have so much interesting things going on, and then they sit down to write something or to create a game and it, it's like they forget that they can't push those parameters beyond what they've already seen in a book or a game. And so I, you know, take all those people that you know and, and what you love about them and put that into your, into your books and into your games. And, and I love doing that. I love that moment. I love depicting, you know, my favorite kids and putting them in the game or, you know, people that just people that you spend your life with, um, and, and creating a reflection of those people because they are a reflection of other people. And I, it just kind of spreads. It's like one of those infection charts, but with good infection. <laughs> I'm thinking of like flashbacks to last year playing Pandemic Legacy and things yeah. getting out of control and having to put stickers yeah. on the board and sobbing about our results. An expansion like that. But most of them, we play the fire one a lot and mostly people just die. So that one's not a good example either. But, um, but you know, so we work with layout to make sure that that there are good, solid depictions of all kinds of different people, of all genders, of all races, of all sexual orientations, of all body sizes, of all ability levels. And, and, you know, that's, it's, it takes extra time, but it's so worth it. I just feel like it's such an important thing because people don't always register what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you know, most of us playing RPGs in the early, I mean, even as a woman, I didn't register that most of the characters I was seeing were men because I was a, a woman and I was like, well, I'm just whatever. And, but you registered it, right? And so now that they're not, even if people aren't thinking, well, there's one guy, there's two women, there's blah, blah, blah like keeping track, they're registering it. They're, th- they're, they're subconscious. It's sort of saying, oh, well, these are all the people who play games or these are all the characters I could be in. And that's a potential for empathy and growth. And I, I think that's really important to do that sort of very subtle 
I guess, a little bit kind of roguish like <laughs> interjection of things. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly growing up on, on video games and role playing games where you invest, you know, 20, 30, 40 or p- plus hours and it's like you're stuck with this character and now it's almost the default is you can be, well, do you want to be a man or do you want to be a woman? Or, And I think they're even kind of pushing that a little bit more of trying to have more fluidity there um, mm-hmm. with with character creation, which I, I think is really a, a good thing. One of the final things I want to talk to you about, and you just brought it up, is the No Thank You Evil, um, which is, I think, it listed as kind of as early as age five you could introduce mm-hmm. this to to players is is that kind of what you found yeah that's pretty much what we found i mean we've had players as young as two but they mostly sort of are sitting there going oh, i want to roll the dice and and they're not you know they're just, just a little too young to grab i have rules, some so. 32 or 42 year old players that act like that so. <laughs> um but no go ahead sorry i interrupted <laughs> no no i i think that was my thing um yeah so young is five um and it's it's a very simplified version of our regular safe system rules. It's designed to be very low in math. Um, it's it's we specially designed it for um, kids who might have trouble reading or kids who are dyslexic. We used a font that is better for kids with dyslexia. Okay. Um, there's a lot of ways in which to interact that don't require you to write or speak, so that kids who are nonverbal or who struggle with verbal skills um, can still interact in a positive way and be rewarded for it. Uh, like I said, we have a lot of depictions of uh, various races and various ability levels and various, you know, just kind of all, we tried to just sort of encompass all the kids that we saw in in the country and in the world and kind of, you know, put them in there so that they could see themselves. Because that's one of the first places where, you know, a kid is going to say, look, that character looks like me or, you know, that I could be that character. I can be that superhero. And we really wanted that for, for children. That seemed really important. Um and we also made it. We also designed it for kids who might struggle with, um, like, some level of colorblindness as well. So we okay. took real care of their colors that we chose and the illustrations, so that if a kid is colorblind, they can still uh, see the difference between like tokens and stats and stuff like that. That's excellent. And yeah, I'm really interested in in products like that. Well, you know, my my son now is about eight, six weeks, so he's got a little ways to go before I sit him down and lead him through an adventure. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it's great that there's now products that uh, you know parents can buy to to use with children, or just you know people who who want to kind of spread spread this type of gaming around, rather than taking something like D and D Fifth Edition or Numenera and trying to say, okay, how can I simplify this to make it work for a child? And you've kind of done all that work for them, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it was actually our Numenera players who were playing, who were doing just that, who were tweaking the game to play with their families that kind of gave us the spark of the idea because, you know, we realized that, uh, I don't know, unlike when I was a kid, like lots and lots and lots of families are playing, you know, together. Like, you know, role players are looking for something for their kids. And so it seemed like an opportunity that there wasn't anything um, that of the scale that we did out there yet. And so we wanted to uh, we wanted to give that, and and part of it was was also selfish because like how fun is it to create a game for kids? Yeah. <laughs> it was it was super fun, and the art just made me laugh every time it came in. And um and you know I, I love hearing from adult players, but there's just something about you know letters from kids or from kids' parents or pictures that just I just make it all worth it. It's kind of amazing. Not so much like using that that product specifically, but in, in playing. 
you know, a role-playing game with someone who's six, seven, you know, someone who, or maybe, you know, even as old as 10, what have you found is most effective for keeping their attention or engaging them in, in the game itself and kind of fueling that creativity rather than just doing more like traffic cop kind of stuff? <laughs> um, I think for me, it's following, following their brain space, which is sort of a weird way to say, like, you know, for me, it's all about finding out what they're interested in by sort of trickery, like, okay, so you walk into this place, what do you see? And allowing them to describe this place, because if they're like, there's four computer games and a blah, 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 then as the GM, I can be like, all right, well, so that's what this player is interested in. So I'm going to find a way that to work that into the world and work that. And we purposely created a world, and I think that you can do this with any game, where anything goes. So if a kid thinks it makes sense, it totally makes sense. That's just, the, that's kind of the, the rule. And so I think listening to them and, and having them, you know, what does this person look like? Well, he's a ghost with no feet and he eats hot dogs. And you're like, all right. And so they, they're engaged, right? Because this is their vision and you're just helping them kind of wander around through it. And I think that's one of the ways in which they, you can, you, you know, because as an adult, you're like, well, this seems cool. And the kid's like, that's stupid. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Um, and I think too, just not, not getting overly pedantic about the rules. You know, if, um, if, if it says that they can throw something and hit somebody, let them throw something and hit somebody. I mean, it's, it's when you start, when you start sort of browbeating into the rules, I think that kids can get kind of bored. Um, but the new generation is really interesting because they, they're growing up on iPad games mm -hmm. and the generation before that was not. And so there's a change that's happening and it's a pretty big change because I would have said that previously kids got the creative imagination stuff, but they didn't understand the rules part. And I think that's changing. I think that, that, that the games on iPads and stuff like that are, are changing their understanding really early of what a game is and that a game has rules. And in the iPad game, you can't break the rules, right? There isn't anybody to sort of talk to about why you think it should work a different way. And so in some ways, engaging them in the rules in this way where they can actually change the rules or adjust the rules or play around with the rules is another way to sort of show how this is different and enticing, but still tied into the things that they're already liking to do. Yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, point about the, the iPad. You know, I have some nephews who now they're eight and nine. So, you know, but they've grown up with devices where they had Kindles or iPads and, you know, they're playing all these different types of games where it's very kind of constrictive. Like, you know, here, here's right. what you can do. Here's what you can't do. It's very visual. And then to take them and say, okay, here's a piece of paper and some dice and, you know, we're going to talk about and describe things and you can pretty much do whatever you can think of that. That would be a little shell shocking. <laughs> in, yeah. In and what we, it, we, yeah, we find that when that happens, the player's first instinct is to do the thing they know. So they want to be the guy from the movie that they saw and play in that world and have the thing that the guy in the movie had. And so that there's sort of a, like a gateway drug there a little bit where they, they bring the ideas that they've seen to the table. And so we, you know, we certainly encourage that. You want to play Batman? Great. Bring it, right? You want to play the ghost that you saw in the movie or the TV show or the, and so like, great, you know, bring that in. And, and so I think that that's an, you can watch this transition happen where they bring the things that they know and they play those characters. And then at, there's this there's this really beautiful moment where they're like, you know, I want to play a different thing that I made up. And you can just kind of see that creativity happen, mm -hmm. start to happen. And then suddenly there's a shift and it's just I don't know, it's really beautiful to watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for those 
for those moments coming up with, with our son Hugo right now. It's like, Oh, he's, he's sleeping. That's exciting. Um, but we're going to get there. We are going to get there. You just need to dress him in like a little D20 outfit and just roll him around. I, and see. I, 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 put, I put the picture on Twitter like a few months ago, but a, a good friend of mine made a polyhedral mobile for him oh. out of like foam, big foam dice. And so he he's already has his first set of dice in that, that way. Fantastic. Um, but but yeah, he'll probably well, knowing me, he'll probably you know grow up to be like the anti nerd and hope he'll, <laughs> he'll be a big sports guy, which is fine. I like sports too, so um, make it work. But we'll, we'll give him the opportunity to do this music, whatever he wants to do. <laughs> Winding down, like I really I really appreciate all, all, all your time. I'm wondering. You know, you've had your hands in a lot of different things over the years, um, writing, game design, teaching, you know, being co-owner of a, of a game company. What's 10 years down the road? Like where <laughs> where do you see yourself going or what if you even have it mapped out like that? Oh, uh, you know, I, I used to think that I could map five years ahead and then, you know, realized that life actually just really throws you a lot of fantastic opportunities and 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 awfulness as well. And so you can't really, can't really plan in that way, or at least I can't. Maybe other people's lives are, are more straightforward than mine. Um, but here's what I do know. I know that writing is sort of my, it, not sort of, writing is my passion. Uh, telling stories, connecting to people, changing the world, you know, creating living, breathing characters that, that have the potential to change someone's life. That is paramount to who I am. It isn't a job. It is, it is a huge part of my essence, my being. Um, and when I go without that, I am, I am sort of lost. So I know that whatever happens in 10 years, even if people aren't reading books anymore, and we've moved into, you know, Fahrenheit 51, I will still be, I will still be writing them. Um, I would also say that for me, the other thing is a challenge. I really thrive on learning new things and having new experiences. And that moment where I come up against the thing that feels absolutely impossible and I figure out, well, first I despair and say, this is absolutely impossible and I'll never be able to do it and then figure out how to do it. That's, that's sort of my joy in, in life. That's sort of the thing that keeps me going and motivated. And so what will that challenge be 10 years? I, I don't know. I don't know what it'll be, but, um, but I, I figure this, the time I stop looking for those challenges and attempting to conquer them is the time that my life is sort of over in some ways. And so I hope that there will be cool, interesting, new, unique challenges coming down the road for me. So, so maybe on a much shorter scale, I wonder, you know, I know your <laughs> book is coming out, uh, which congratulations on that. And what, what else is next for you for MCG? Like what's, what's coming more immediately down the road? Well, we just finished uh, the expansion for No Thank You Evil, so that's uh, just went off to press. So that's exciting because that, first of all, that means it's coming out soon, and it also means that I'm I'm done with it. It's off. <laughs> it's all like I can't I can't keep worrying about it anymore. Um, and I also just finished the rough draft of Predation, which is a far future, like a very far future, far past <laughs> game. It's all, uh, it's set a hundred years in our future where they discover time travel, time travel back to the Cretaceous, and now they're stuck there with the dinosaurs. And so your whole your whole experience is that you are second or third generation of these people who've been stuck in the Cretaceous. You have a dinosaur companion that you run around with. Um, and so the goal is to, 
the asteroid is coming because we know that it's, you know, because in the future we know exactly when the asteroid hits is coming and your goal is to figure out, can you fix time travel? Can you find another way to survive? Uh, will humanity just be destroyed? So that um, that draft is finished and the editors are looking at it. And so um, we've been play testing and that's been very fun. Wow. That'll be out later. This year. It reminds me of the story I read when I was younger, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, which I love that book. <laughs> oh, wow. I had totally forgotten about that book. I should go back and revisit that. That's a, yeah, wow. That's like a piece of my childhood right there. Yeah, um, no, it, just, <laughs> it captures that kind of vibe of being sort of out of time, but in reverse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's far, it's always funny. It's like, it's a far future, far past book. You're like, what? Um, and then I am co-writing the night, a, book, a novel called The Nightclave, uh, which is the second Numenera novel. Okay. Um, uh, and I'm co-writing that with Monty right now. So we're working on that. We're just getting started this week, which is exciting. Uh, that'll be out uh, later this year, I think, or the beginning of next year. I'm not sure. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, we, we are working on a bunch of things and I don't know yet which one I'm going to get to work on, but I know that Monty is working on Invisible Sun for, um, MCG, which is, we're play testing. We just play tested it last night. It's just, it's just crazy and wild and super fun. And, um, and I just, <laughs> I'm just loving it so much. So maybe I'll get to work on that. That would be really fun. Um, and then we have, uh, a strange box set Kickstarter coming up in next week. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so we'll be doing something similar to what we did for Numenera. So we, I feel like as a team, we also have our fingers in a lot of different pots, and we seem to work really well together that way. We we all sort of really thrive on on the, that new challenge and creating new exciting things, and that's it's really fun to be part of a team like that. Wonderful. And well, you're you you know write in different places. You have articles at different blogs. But where, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they have questions or just want to say hey, like what you're doing? Um, how how can people reach you? Um, well, shaunagermain.com is my um, website where you can see the things that I have done in addition to gaming, uh, novels, short stories, stuff like that. Uh, Monte Cook Games is a great place to kind of see what I'm working on. I do a blog there once a month or so, um, and there's a contact us form. I'm also pretty active on Facebook and Twitter. Um, right now I'm less so because the beginning of a novel for me requires a lot of deep thought, and I find that social media is uh, come sometimes a deterrent to deep thought, um, but I, I am I'm on there, you know, semi-regularly, so it's a fine place to connect with me as well. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time, and good luck with all the different endeavors you have coming up here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, and good luck with your little one. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I'm about to go upstairs and check in on them now. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks. That was super fun.